video game the movie the podcast hello everybody and welcome to video game the movie the podcast on today's episode we are going to be talking about the 2005 horror cult <laughs> shit show alone <laughs> in the dark I learned the truth a long time ago. Being afraid of the dark is what keeps most of us alive. I can't believe it. It's happening again. What's going on, Carnby? That's what I'm trying to figure out here. Some gateways should never be opened. Hello? Hello? Some fears should never be seen. I don't think we're supposed to be here. And some terrors can never be stopped. Every culture's got a story about the end of the world, doesn't it? But not every story starts to become true. Get more bodies down here now! how he didn't use the word film because that's being kind of generous yeah that would be a bit too much so before we start anything i just want to apologize and say that in putting together the list of episodes to do i missed two movies so we should be doing house of the dead this episode that's on me we're gonna jump back and cover house of the dead and the second resident evil movie Maybe you messed up the list so that when we watch another Resident Evil movie, we'll have to be grateful. <laughs> I was way too harsh on Resident Evil, is what I learned watching this movie. So, who, who did plot last week? That was that was you. I, I attempted to. Who wants to do plot? It's either me or you, Alexei. I, th I think you can do it, Kenzie, because you haven't done one in a while. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, good luck. Godspeed. <laughs> So the first thing about this plot is, this movie, is that it starts with an opening crawl of, like, text exposition with a, like, voiceover that I'm pretty sure is wrong compared to the what? rest of the movie. There is a, like, timeline error in this opening crawl, but I'll describe, I'll describe it as the film kind of does it, because I'm not going to read out the whole opening crawl, and the movie shouldn't have done it anyways. No, no. it was so bad. So anyways, opening crawl... Uh, there was an ancient civilization, found evidence of an ancient civilization in a mine in the 60s. They had some kind of light, dark world beliefs. Government agency was built to look into this stuff. They kidnap some orphans, do some experiments. <laughs> uh, and then the movie starts with an inaccurate flashback thing because it never establishes the current timeline. It starts with 22 years earlier into nothing. Yep. Um, it's 
just flashes. It's not It's not like, sense, but we shouldn't get yeah. into this. I should try to focus. This yeah, is really hard. Sorry. Okay. All of the orphans in a Catholic orphanage somewhere go missing. The nun in charge is kind of aware that this is going to happen and is talking with some kind of shady government dude. One of the children is found in a electrical box room, like the like the spreaker room for the orphanage, I guess. The like transformer is there, the generator. Anyways, then in the future, or in the present, again, this timeline is terrible, the orphan is now a Christian Slater on a plane being an asshole to children for no apparent reason. He is some kind of paranormal investigator. He's found a doodad. This is intercutting at random with the grown-up government dude from the orphan kidnapping thing earlier, digging up something from the ocean. Tertiarily, there is also a blonde lady working at a museum who's also, like, into these artifacts. Christian Slater gets in a fight with a dude who doesn't seem to feel pain correctly, and he kills him by, like, shoving him onto a fish hook pretty intensely. I'm really kind of pulling a blank. He goes back to his weird warehouse bedroom for a bit. I think the next plot thing that happens is... I I think what's happening is you're trying to pull too much detail out. Just take the very broad strokes, because there's very little else. Yeah, like, I'm trying to go beat by beat, but, like, in doing so, there is no, like, a real beat. Okay, the The most simplest approach. The connective tissue of this movie, the connective tissue of this movie is absolute nonsense. fucking dreadful. Okay. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to start from the top. There's a paranormal investigator. He was an orphan who was part of an orphanage where all of the orphans disappeared once and then came back. There's definitely a shady government dude and a nun involved. Later, he is a paranormal investigator who has a gold artifact from this ancient culture we were told about. He goes to the museum where his girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, whatever, can like decode the thing, which she never really does, but whatever. She turns out to be working for the government dude, There's also still the paranormal investigations-like team from the United States government. They don't like him, the paranormal investigator, because he used to work for them and now he doesn't. They almost get killed by some monsters in a museum, and then they... I can't even remember. They have some more exposition dumps. They have some more fight scenes. Uh, they eventually make their way to a the mine where okay, yeah. the port. I'll just skip the door. ahead. There is a. They end up in a mine shaft that leads to a secret laboratory that has behind the secret laboratory the door to the world of darkness. The the evil government guy has sicked a bunch of orphan zombies on them because all of the orphans were sleeper agents. They're like spine worms that they all have and also the paranormal investigator has the including his like friend the like doctor who helped him like figure out what was going on with the weird dude who attacked him he gets zombified they go into the mines so they don't really have to deal with any of this stuff it's just random mooks on the surface who do uh they open the door to darkness and then close a different metal door over it and get out having not been killed by the monsters, but then everything on the planet is gone, and also it was under the orphanage the whole time. The end? Yeah, that's about about what happened. Yeah, this movie sucks ass, guys. (laughs) I can't even describe- I don't even think it has a plot. I just realized. I, I had to think through this morning- 
how I would describe the plot of this movie. And you're not that far off. And it was really hard to think through it because this movie is nonsense. We're like, I think what we should do is not really talk about it beat by beat, just by talk about what happened at various points, because it doesn't matter what order they happened in. No, we can't talk about this movie beat by beat because the individual beats don't make sense next to yeah. each other. So this is a movie with a 2% on Rotten Tomatoes. And when Lexi informed us of that before watching, I was like, well, okay, Rotten Tomato is, like, kind of a bonkers system. It doesn't, like, grade things well. This could be, like, any number of whatever. Or there was a part of yeah, me... Yeah, it could be really fun. Yeah, there was a part of me we that was, like... get to watch some trash. Maybe it's, like, really bad in a way that'll be entertaining. It's it's really bad, but it's not in a way that's entertaining. It's completely non-functional. <laughs> so connoisseurs <laughs> of bad movies will know the name Uwe Boll because this is something I learned in researching this movie. Uwe Boll has done a number of video game adaptations and a number of very low budget movies that have become famous for how bad they are. And he's also notorious <laughs> for being really aggressive towards people who criticize his movies. <laughs> and I learned in researching this movie that something that I think explains his career a lot to me, <laughs> he finances his own films through two companies that he owns. It shows. He really is the Tommy Wiseau of video game adaptations. He is like the definition of an auteur. He puts up his own money to finance these movies and has complete control over them. To I'm the sorry, degree you that guys, you can when you're doing someone else's IP, but still. You guys uh, listening can't see this, but I'm literally crying from laughter. And we haven't even started talking about this fucking movie. I'm sorry, Lexi, but I do have to inform you, Uwe is going to come after us again. He has done oh, no. this a number of times. We're going to get oh, to no. see his take on satire of American violence in Postal. We're going to get to see him do fantasy in the Dungeon Siege movie, I think. I think oh, that boy. was one of his. Or maybe it was like Dragon Siege. I don't remember. I think we've already seen one of his movies, haven't we? No, not yet. Not yet. We've... This is the first. It's like him and Paul W.S. Anderson are the two directors that really made it in video game movies. And all their stuff is Ugh. fucking terrible. <laughs> I would take Paul W.S. Anderson any day, because at least I get to look like, look at Mila Jovovich. Yeah. Like, yeah. And Anderson seems to have at least a level of technical proficiency that Uwe Boll is completely lacking. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna say my my only nice things I can say about this movie. Cause I feel like we're being kind of mean. And it deserves Understandably it. Understandably so. It deserves it. But on a sheer technical level. It is not the worst movie I've ever seen. Like, we've watched bad movies for fun. Me and Nathan do this sometimes. It's not, like, incompetent in the sense that, like, you can't see or hear what's going on. Like, it is shot. The lighting is decent. The lighting is pretty decent, especially considering so much of it is in the dark. The audio mix is fine. That I have to say this as a compliment tells you about the rest of the movie uh the editing the beat by beat editing is also mostly comprehensible when it gets into action scenes it stops being comprehensible but like it falls apart it at the very least seems to know how to shoot dialogue 
Which isn't I mean, hard, but like Yeah. The dialogue is fine, but like they'll intercut scenes. They'll just jump between scenes randomly oh, the, with no The structural anything. editing is atrocious. But like any individual like sequence Okay, that's functions. Fair. Again, uh, this is as nice as I think I'm gonna get. Uh the actors aren't Okay, a couple of them are. But most of the actors are at least kind of not atrocious. They're doing their best. It's just that nothing yeah. they're saying is making any sense, and it doesn't matter. Yeah. I will also say, as a compliment for this movie, that the soundtrack itself is pretty good. It just doesn't apply to the movie well, in any way. I think the, cl- the cl- problem that I had with the soundtrack is that it's entirely made out of soundtrack cliches. That too, it's yes. It's just like... But they're well done. Like they sound, they it sounds like physically s- sound good. They physically sound like music. It's like the stock footage equivalent of a fucking soundtrack, yes. which is impressive, yeah. honestly, because that's not a thing you can do with music. Is my understanding. Uh, all right, let's pump the brakes for a second so that I can lay some background for the games, and then we can move on to just tearing this fucking movie apart. The game is hardly fucking related at this point. I I imagine it's nothing alike. So the the first game was made in 1992, and it's mostly notable for what was at the time some really good technical problem solving. Uh, 1992 was just before we would start seeing games that were modeled entirely in 3D. But what Alone in the Dark did, it's a, it's a horror game that pulls a lot from the Cthulhu mythos, but isn't directly a, like, H.P. Lovecraft adaptation. Uh, You're exploring this 1920s haunted house because the previous owner of this manor committed suicide mysteriously. You choose between one of two characters to investigate and you start in the attic and you go down different floors like fighting monsters and solving puzzles until you get to the caverns under the manor where you find out that the architect that built this manor made like a deal with an elder god to gain immortality and he is like fused to a tree in a cavern under the the manor and is like haunting it okay so you're telling me uh, this is the second fucking video game adaptation that has a perfectly fine haunted house yep. and doesn't yep. use it guys haunted houses are a thing people have made movies about what is interesting they work is that This movie isn't really based on that game. It's based on a reboot that came out in 2001 called Alone in the Dark, The New Nightmare. Now, the character is the same, but given that the first game was set in the 1920s and then they made two games afterwards that are also set contemporaneously with the first one, the new one is a modern set game where you play as the same character, but in this like new canon who is uh, a paranormal investigator named Edward Carnby investigating the disappearance of or murder of an old friend of his. And in the process of investigating this, he meets up with this woman who is looking for her missing uncle, and they end up investigating this creepy old island with this manor on it, and they again find this doorway to a world of like Cthulhu and horrors under the manor 
that is like bleeding through into the world above so they have to try and stop it and yeah like the the reboot was still received pretty well but by the time they had gotten to it it was basically a retread of the what the resident evil games were already doing better so the the franchise kind of dropped off in popularity after that point even though they kept making games so the the movie is more based on that game in that it is in a modern setting seems to be the only actual like claim there yeah though the yeah. the movie is doing a good job at replicating the game in that it is a shittier version of Resident Evil. Yeah. The game did do something really interesting, technically, which was part of the uh, gameplay of New Nightmare is you have a flashlight and the enemies are uh, vulnerable to light, like in the movie. So if you shine your flashlight on them, they will disintegrate. Uh, But they couldn't really simulate realistic dynamic lighting in 2001 it just wasn't a thing you could do in video games so what they did was they tracked where the flashlight was pointing and then they put the information the visual information for multiple different brightnesses of the backgrounds into the game and then they just like Hmm. tracked wherever the flashlight was pointing they like projected a circle from it and whatever fell within that circle they just told the background to show the brighter version of itself a clever solution which is pretty clever that's a decent solution anyway i just thought that was neat i wish this movie cared about itself half as much as the people who developed that fix yeah So I totally didn't even mention in my recap that the monsters are allergic to light because the movie only mentions it once and it doesn't fucking matter. Nope, it never comes up again. Especially even at the end when it's broad daylight Yeah, and they have monster noises running up behind the guy before they smash cut into the credits. There's a monster now in, you know, this empty city in broad daylight that's allergic to light. Whatever. Why did they evacuate the city? I still don't understand. I don't even know if it's it evacuated or devastated. Like, I can't tell no. from the film. No. There was a, there's a, it a said evacuated. There's a caption in the final scene where it says, like, it's like 8.45 a.m. or whatever the time is, city evacuated, and then they wander through the empty city. But, like, it's a city presented as if every person was killed, not a city presented as if it was evacuated. Right, because there's just, like, there's cars parked on the sides of streets. There are cars parked very, very regularly throughout <laughs> streets with doors open, which, if you're evacuating, you're taking your cars out yeah, it's of the not, city. It's not like the piled-up traffic at the edge of town you'd expect like people ditched their cars because they couldn't get out anymore it's like halfway through a totally normal street there's a car at a diagonal like there's no traffic jams no they're just dotted around empty empty streets i didn't think i was centered with the door open here's the thing (laughs) at least i knew what the hell happened at the end of resident evil with the city was empty this movie confuses itself yeah and like this movie at various points has shown a lo- I mean, the monsters, when they kill people, it's really gory. And so there are no bodies anywhere in this the empty city. Yeah. So they have to have left, but it's presented as if they all died. But... Also, there was one moment, uh, there's some, te- there's a lot of technical things wrong with this movie, but uh, they, they have an overshot that, like a, of the city, and there was one car I saw moving, 
at one point. <laughs> oh, if we want to talk about like, oh, we're getting clear and obvious mistakes in continuity that this movie makes, there's a character who dies in the mine shaft when they're like descending to the secret lab. When they declare that she's dead and everyone like starts to walk off camera, she sits up. She it's so very bad. blatantly sits up just as the camera cuts. The first like, time you we watched cut like two fucking frames earlier, Uve. What the it's hell? It's so obvious. It's and so obvious. Get another like, take, Uve. I, I tried to, I tried to tell uh, someone about this when when I saw it because I I just lost it I had to leave the room and tell <laughs> someone and then uh, when I came back like they they were saying like could it have been like oh she's like coming back as a zombie and I was like it was very clear but to just nail it home that this was a mistake they drag her body out of the way later in the scene. <laughs> Yeah. before they blow a door open like i thought for a second the same thing when it was sitting up like well maybe it's like because like there's kind of a zombie vibe going on but like no people aren't coming back from the dead in this movie she's not coming back from the dead in this movie they just only got one take and she couldn't stay on the ground for five more seconds yeah just to highlight how the monsters are supposed to work in this movie uh, which is something that they never really give any motivation for. It's that, like, back in the past, 10,000 years ago, this uh, tribe first opened a door to the world of darkness, and some of these monsters slipped through before they could close it. And there were some people who, for no explained reason whatsoever, allied themselves with the monsters and were given these, like centipede worm things that bond to their spine and give them superpowers but like why though yeah and like there is there's a huge gap of missing information from 10,000 years ago a few of these monsters got out to in the 1960s we found the first remnants of this culture and then started doing experiments on the stuff they talked about but like it doesn't try to like even kind of deal with what the ramifications of there being a monster like it occasionally brings up the thought that like that's why people are afraid of the dark but like these things have like only been like noticed since the 60s in rural areas like this is it's just taking so much for granted and it doesn't help you in any way go along with it no it's real bad it doesn't make any <laughs> sense there is uh, a reveal partway through the movie. What must be intended to be a reveal, I can only guess based on the way it's framed, that the the like government, the the former government scientist is working as the curator of the Natural History Museum in this unnamed city that the movie takes place in, and he throughout the movie has been very obsessed with getting his hands on all of these different artifacts that seem to fit together in some way. And he's never really out and out portrayed as evil, but you kind of get the sense that he's the villain, like right from the get go. He just gives off that vibe. Well, no, you well, get he that says he's the he... villain from the beginning because the opening crawl says that he went rogue and captured a bunch of orphans to do experiments on them in a dungeon. I mean that too. Yeah. I mean, he, he also <laughs> is very clear, like, 
we'll just sacrifice these children. It's fine. <laughs> and then he also says, uh, when they're on the boat, one of the first lines he has is like, get the artifact and then kill someone. Yeah, he's, which yeah. presum- it, it presumably is, the main character. It is presented very early on that he has like ulterior motives and is doing really shady stuff. But then there's a moment like halfway through the movie where he like sadly walks into his office and then there is like a slow camera rotation to reveal that he has one of the shadow monsters in a cage in his office that he extracts blood from and injects it into his own veins. This scene is never explained. He never seems to portray any supernatural powers. It's just a thing that happens, and then the movie continues, as if this is some kind of heel turn and it's being revealed that he knew about the monsters the whole time. The, like... The visual framing of the scene reads that way, but the rest of the movie does not support it. (laughs) No, this movie doesn't support itself in any way. So I mentioned that the movie starts with this opening scrawl and like a, what would be a flashback sequence if it weren't the start of the movie um, in the orphanage, which is not only unnecessary, but confuses the rest of the plot because the rest of the plot treats it as if we don't know these things that it really intentionally told us at the very beginning of the movie. Yeah. It acts like it's a mystery. And this isn't a case where I think, oh, fixing the editing would really make this movie work. It wouldn't, but it would at least make it slightly less stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like something something that I feel like happened, or I, I feel like this movie's script was being written as they shot it. Probably. You know? I mean, because they have these reveals, they've got exposition dumps constantly. Uh, This movie never actually does anything with characters. It's just, (laughs) I I have in my notes, I counted them in my notes where I just wrote in big capital letters, exposition, (laughs) or thank you, exposition, or just like, no, trailing (laughs) off, sadly, because it's yet another narrative, like, overdub narrative internal monologue thing. This this is how heavy-handed this movie is. It starts with like a solid three-minute narrated opening text crawl that explains basically the entire movie. Then we get a flashback scene that shows us the backstory of our main character. Then we get a present-day sequence that is interrupted by noir-style voiceover of the main character explaining who he is and what he's doing. This is not a feature that is present throughout the rest of the movie. The noir-style internal monologue? Yeah. Like, it comes up for me no, two or three No, it happens, like, three or four times, But it's I feel so like. it, it's, it's a so constant s- thing. It's so spread out. It happens. It's so yeah. spread out throughout the movie that by the time it comes back, you've forgotten that that was a convention they were using. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it, it's like they it's whenever there's a a beat where nothing's happening, it's just him talking as he like strips and flops onto his bed or whatever. His bed, which is in a warehouse. <laughs> yeah, also, yeah. also unexplained. I I feel like it's better to call, not call him a paranormal investigator and call him really really budget knockoff Indiana Jones. 
He's like hobo Indiana Jones. <laughs> Oh. Okay. I I have used this phrase a couple times talking to people about this movie already, but I think it is accurate that this movie feels like the cinematic equivalent of a 13-year-old in a ill-fitting leather jacket smoking cigarettes behind his high school trying to be cool. <laughs> it's so juvenile. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, so there are so many accurate. different terrible things about this movie I want to talk about. Um, all right. I, I want to bring up the thing that I mentioned a little bit earlier about the opening crawl being wrong. The order of events as portrayed in the opening di- like opening text scrawl are different than the order of events as portrayed in the movie. So according to the opening text scrawl, the agency gets shut down and then... The scientist goes rogue and kidnaps a bunch of children and does experiments on them. Well, no, the agency itself doesn't get shut down. He gets fired from the agency. He gets defund- Like, the agency gets defunded, is what the opening text says. That his research gets defunded. His research, but not the Bureau as a whole. I mean, it, it implies that it's large- Like, the Bureau is largely, at least, slightly cut back, if memory serves- Regardless, the order is very clear that the shutdown or defunding or whatever happens, and then the scientist goes rogue and kidnaps a bunch of children and builds a secret lab. When they actually go to the lab, it is 100% a government-operated lab. They 100% are freaking out because it is definitely operated by 713, the, like, operation here. It has their logo printed on the gurneys that the kids were strapped to. And they are talking about it as if, oh my god, we did this horrible thing as an agency. Yes. And then later the villain says to the main character who got away for a little bit as an orphan and whose brain slug got electrocuted, if you hadn't gotten away and caused my my thing to be a failure, I wouldn't have been defunded. Right, yeah. So the order of events in the movie is... The government creates this horrible child torture lab where they implant them with brain slugs. And then Edward, the like main character, gets away. That is viewed as a failure by the organization. And they are cut, like they fire that scientist or cut him off or whatever. And he just starts working as a consultant instead. That is different. (laughs) That is a different series of events with different motivations and different results. I don't... Know how they got this wrong. It's yeah. their own movie. They did both parts. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it was just shot and edited in order and written in or- at the same time. It's so bad. Speaking of how it's edited, I want to get into the major structural issues with this movie. Just in the way that it breaks up and presents its scenes. Because in the opening, like, ten minutes... We have three concurrent scenes that are happening, but they can't seem to let any one scene happen from start to finish before cutting to another scene, even when the continuity of those scenes doesn't need to overlap. They're happening in completely different parts of the world. They are not necessarily related in any way as far as cause and effect goes. They're just things that are happening presumably at the same time, more or less. But then the movie will show like five or ten seconds of one scene, and then it'll hard cut to another scene. 
and then it'll show five or ten seconds of that scene, and then it'll hard cut to another scene. And it keeps shuffling back and forth like that, so you never really get a sense of what is happening in any one scene. It's just, like, stuff now you'd think- <laughs> being thrown at you from two different directions. Or three. Or three, or four. Yeah. Or however many scenes are going on at the same time. Now, you you might think, oh, I've seen this technique. This is parallel editing. This is done to fantastic effect in a lot of ways. No, you're wrong. This is not that. This is trying to be that, <laughs> but it's wrong. It's I've done film theory. I know how this is supposed to work. This isn't how it's supposed to work. Because at the end of the day, these scenes don't have any direct connection to each other. Or an indirect connection to each other, except for the fact that they're happening in the same movie. (laughs) The only thing I can think of for why this is, there is like two or three options, I guess, for why this editing was done as a choice. One, Uwe Boll is trying to be artsy. Which he tries so much throughout this movie. Okay, that's probably part of it. Two, somebody in the editing bay put the scenes together in a like normal way. This is what the beats of this scene would be like and realized every individual scene was so bad that the only way you could tolerate watching it was by shoving random different distractions in throughout the whole thing. (laughs) Making it worse. Do you want to talk about fight scenes? Oh, let's talk about fight scenes. Let's talk about a fight scene. Lexi, Uh, do you want to start the conversation about fight scenes? So, okay, so this guy, as we've established, was trying to do a lot of artsy nonsense. And so he's got really self-indulgent fight scenes that are poorly edited and choreographed. Some of them are okay choreographed, but there's a scene at the beginning of the movie when we first meet Karin B. He ends up getting into a taxi fight chase uh, and then fighting this wolf guy who is superpowered and like jumping off of a bridge and gets shot in the chest and whatnot he we get a shot where carnby is hiding in an ice cutting warehouse and he shoots his gun at this guy we go into the gun watch the bullet you know fire in the explosion we then follow the bullet as it smashes through an ice block, which explodes, and then we follow a second bullet that goes right behind it, directly into the guy's chest. And has no effect. It does nothing. (laughs) There was so much emphasis put on these bullets. He'd done shots before, and he did shots after, and they all had no effect, but we just cut to a, like, wanted-style bullet shot. For no reason. <laughs> and then they're doing... Oh, man. I mean, the rest of that fight scene is just as bad, but it's just bad choreography. Um, there, There's a fight scene... I, I'm oh, gonna go. Okay. I'm gonna do this in pairs of threes, and so I, I want. I want to oh. highlight one moment from that fight scene before we move okay. on, which is so the fight scene begins as a car chase where the pursuer has stolen a taxi cab and is following Carnby's taxi from the airport, uh, and he corners them in an alley and like runs into their cab. He is presumably chasing after Carnby. Carnby gets out of the cab, turns around, and the dude's gone. And the dude has run away around the corner and climbed up to 
is like a rooftop or something or a bridge. I don't remember exactly, but overlooking Carnby, he has like run around, gone up into onto this bridge so that he could then jump down with both fists out in like a Donkey Kong style (laughs) leaping jump punch to try and take down Carnby, which is just so unnecessary. He was pinned in a cab. You could have just killed him right there. I'm going to take one aside to say this is one of the sequences with one of the only vaguely likable characters, the kind of nice hippie cab driver who's super willing to like <laughs> take him on a like car chase and is also mostly worried about his boss not liking it. There are two likable characters yeah. in this movie, and neither of them are important at all. And they're right. both just working class schlubs. Yeah. Yep. Oh, also, nobody's uh, wearing a seatbelt in that scene, and the cab no. driver is distressingly bad at like taking his eyes like off and on on and off the road all the time. So he yeah. is upsetting to watch driving, but he seems like a perfectly nice gentleman. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted uh, to highlight that moment because I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, that that's one of the many terrible points where. This movie tries to be artsy with its fight scenes, but fails. Later on, there is a fight scene. Oh, I need to also mention they smash like upwards of three windows in that single fight scene. Oh, yeah, they did. <laughs> uh, and it's for no apparent reason, largely in Chinatown. <laughs> the, the, we need to like be clear: the scene is as stupid as it can possibly be. <laughs> Uh, there's a fight scene later where a whole bunch of the parasite-controlled orphans show up and try and kill Carnby in his weird warehouse house. And uh, th- at this point, I'm pretty sure is where all of the orphans get killed. Like, all the former orphans. I'm pretty sure every single one of, one of them, there were 20 of them, die. Uh, well, I think some more because- of them somehow show up at the end of the movie, though, so I don't know. Well, I think the I think the shadow monsters at the end of the movie aren't the orphans. I don't know what but where they came from. But there are some zombie people, aren't there? Or is this all of the zombie people just this scene? I don't all know. All the zombie people are just this scene. Pretty much they're mostly concentrated to that scene. God, this movie's bad. I can't even keep this action scenes apart. <laughs> uh and so during this scene, they're they're just kind of willy-nilly killing these people as also 713 shows up. Uh, but there's a fight scene between between two totally random Asian martial artists. One of them is controlled by a parasite. One of them works for 713. They do martial arts at each other. It looks really good because they're actual martial artists. They're never seen again. They were never seen before. He, j- Uwe, whatever his name is, just wanted martial arts in this movie. And now we will move to the worst fight scene in the entire movie. And I just have to call it the gun flash scene. Anyone who's seen this movie knows what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, the gun flash scene. (laughs) Oh, does anyone want to explain this idiotic thing? I'll start by explaining some of the mechanics that go into the idea of this scene. So in theory, these monsters are like immune or... Are easily they're they're weak to light. 
to specific spectrums of UV light is Which, how it is described. No, by it's the described as frequencies of Sorry, light because it's frequencies a of UV light. Which is not how it I don't works. even know if they specified UV. Yeah. Whatever. Anyways, <laughs> but, yeah. they're supposed to be weak to light, and they have like some ability to like control electricity. Fine. This is a totally workable monster concept. You could make some really interesting stuff with this. The way that 713 has decided to deal with this is not by, like, creating floodlights with these frequencies or... Well, they did. They just don't use them. They don't use them. <laughs> or, like, backpack generator, like, lights or something. Like, something that would kind of be, like, make sense. They bring up, a, they give him a flashlight. They make a point of giving him a special flashlight for this that he never he uses. Never uses <laughs> he never it. uses So you'd think, okay, those are the obvious cool ways of doing it. Whatever. I guess this movie's not that inventive. Instead, they use glow-in-the-dark bullets. <laughs> bullets that yeah. are covered in, like, a radiant resin, I believe is how it is described. It's it's I think it's like photon activate, no, photon excited something, well, I don't know. It's some really fancy series of words that basically means they're light bullets. Yeah. But yeah. Okay, so they never seem that effective. So this is already like pretty stupid, but you can maybe go along with it in a camp way, right? Like, oh uh, yeah, mm. they're killing the darkness with bullets made of light. But this movie is too lame for that, and it has no camp value. You can make something this stupid work. You could. Good directors have done... Bad directors have. Even bad directors have made interesting movies with things that are this stupid. Uwe Boll is not a good director, and he's not a fun enough bad director to have made something that was fun in a campy way. So we have established now that the primary weapon, 713, is going to use against the shadow monsters, which people keep saying they can't see, but are always clearly visible in all of the shots they're in. I, yeah. And not like in a way that like shows that they're opaque or anything. They're just kind of there. Well, they sometimes you can see through them, kind of. Sometimes. They're, they're like weirdly translucent, maybe kind. It's they face the same problem that the spirits within, yeah, uh, kind of faced, where it's just like, oh, suddenly we can see them, well, and it's fine. The spirits within at least establishes that like there are ways you can see them, and there are like pathways mm. that they go through that creates energy or whatever, and the way they are visualized in that is really cool. Yeah. This movie, it's just like reptile monsters, and they are vaguely translucent maybe when they enter a scene, and then they are just, like, static objects. And the invisibility yeah. is completely redundant because they have to exist in the shadows anyway, and they're already black. Like, they have these, like, dark carapaces that you can't really see in the shadows anyway. Yeah. So then saying and they can also turn invisible on top of that... It's just a bridge too far. We don't need it. It's They're never going to be visible in the light anyway because they'll disintegrate. It's bad. Anyways, <laughs> they are facing off against some of these monsters in a situation. I can't even remember. I think it's the start of the mine shaft or it's no, the end of the warehouse. This is still his home warehouse. Okay, it's at the end of the warehouse scene. A bunch of the agents show up with their cool light guns and... They start shooting off, and there's very bright muzzle flashes, but it keeps cutting to, like, absolute darkness and shots of the monsters and the bullets kind of at random, and it's just horrible to experience. What they did, which makes it 
probably even worse is that like so you've got all these characters just kind of posing shooting guns looking cool but everything the whole scene has been artificially darkened such that you can it only they only show the light of the scene when the muzzle flashes happen with like fake darkness like painted onto the outsides of the the screen or whatever i don't know exactly how it does so it all ends up looking like really really bad cgi <laughs> oh the movie is just uh yeah there are moments in this movie cinematography where i'm like Okay, this is a very studio-y, like, sh- shooting style. But, like, the sheer black backdrops with the, like, harshly lit characters on occasion looks really interesting. Like, you could do a really cool chiaroscuro kind of, like, playing of light and shadows thing, which would play well into the movie's concepts. But it never does it. It never looks cool. Well, and especially since one of the things this movie seems to want to be is a noir detective movie that is crossed with a horror thriller and you could also do interesting things by playing off of the hard shadows lighting of noir which was one of the that's one of the visual trademarks of the genre is that you know the lights are always passing through hard objects and creating shapes and like shadows on walls like that's part of the defining feature of noir is the way that they're lit. And this movie doesn't do fucking anything with that. (laughs) There are moments in this movie where it feels like it wants to be like eight different kinds of movies and it can't even bear to bring itself near any single one of them. Yeah. This is a movie that feels like it was made by someone who had three different movie genres described to him and then was allowed to direct a movie. (laughs) Oh, I also want to bring up, since we're talking about where and how this was shot, because it's mostly shot in studio, is what it looks like, which is fine. I have no judgment on that front. But what it is shot outside in this city, which I'm pretty sure they never name. They yeah, only I ever seem no to refer to it in the captions that come up as the city. Yeah, it's somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, because we see a yeah, map it- like talk about that. Where it is, is Vancouver. It's really fucking obviously shot in Vancouver. There is like an establishing shot with a goddamn RBC in the background. That's the Royal Canadian fucking like bank. Like it's not, it's the Royal Bank of Canada. There's a big ass RBC and then they go to this cafe and right behind them is Hornby Street. Like you can locate the specific RBC on Google Maps it is the most obviously shot in Vancouver movie, and that's fine. Vancouver's a lovely city, but, like, this is the most, hey, Vancouver's a stand-in city movie I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> the only other time I've recognized something so harshly and so immediately was a movie filmed in Saskatchewan, where I grew up using a street that I lived a block away from for a sequence. <laughs> and, like, that doesn't seem like a fair comparison. I shouldn't be able to notice that. I've been to Vancouver once. <laughs> oh, the fact that I was so bored during this movie that I googled whether or not there was a Hornby Street with an RBC on it instead of pay attention might say something about the movie. Yeah. I don't at me about like, oh, if you didn't pay attention, well, how can you judge the movie? I fucking rewound it after that. I just, 
needed to like give myself something stimulating for a second. We needed something, you guys. Uh, it's a really bad movie. We haven't even talked about the cast either. Because uh, they're boring. I want to talk about the only. Really, yeah. Let's break up the pain here. Let's talk about the only other good character in the movie. Rob, the security guard Rob. at the museum. Hell yes. We haven't discussed this before, me and Lexi. So I'm jazzed uh, that Lexi agrees here. I'm so glad you also connected with Rob. Rob is the only no, good thing about this movie. I would watch really a movie is. about Rob. I, I actually have already come up with my uh, final rating. And Rob is involved, so... <laughs> Rob is the only... Okay, so when they first introduced the museum as a set piece, which I'm 90% sure is, like, the Vancouver, like, Natural History Museum or Art mu art Gallery, because it's got, like, a whack load of, like, what look like first Canadian First Nations, specifically maybe Haida, like, sculptures, maybe Dene. Um, hmm. Like, it's a lot of very clearly First Nations-y, like, art. Which yeah. is dope. It's great work if you ever have the opportunity to see any of it. Some of the most mind-boggling stuff I've ever seen is, like, Inuit miniatures. Like, it's awesome. But they, uh, the first time they enter this building, which is just some kind of museum, the movie doesn't really care, uh, they... <laughs> A package is being delivered to our female lead. I'll, uh, yes, yeah, I'll give her, her that. Either. Our female lead, blondemic lady girl. Her name She's is a hot Aline. archivist. Her name is okay. Aline, which they bring up maybe once. Anyways, she this she's a hot archivist lady who's the girlfriend of of Carnby, and that's about as much as you get from yeah. her. And this is the kind of character I normally instantly follow him up with because I love me like an academic woman who cares about like creepy artifacts. That's like what makes the chick in the mummy so hot. Yeah, I was but just gonna say if you want a good version of this character dynamic, watch the Brendan Fraser mummy movies. <laughs> Like, enjoy yourself for an hour. This movie, like, <laughs> yeah, so she's, she's not... she's just, like, conventionally... Uh, she's just good. boring, and I'm sorry yeah. this actress isn't doing a really great job. She's doing her best, she's but she's not doing great. She's, and I never... It's like they got a model that they thought, you know, she looks really good, but she doesn't have any acting skills. But there are models who can act. <laughs> no, there are. There them. absolutely are. Like, but this was not, yeah. And I, I don't know, I don't usually bring this kind of stuff up, but I just found her voice endlessly grating. And I don't know, maybe it's just because she also spoke with absolutely no genuine inflection, but like there was something about her, everything about her was just like... It was kind of I a just, valley girl accent thing. But she didn't you know, like that, come that off thing. as stupid, she was just tr trilly. No. Her voice had very trilly quality to it. Yeah. Anyways... <laughs> I'm trying to talk about the one nice thing, and I just keep ragging on this lady. <laughs> in the scene where she is introduced, they are in the museum, and a package is being delivered to her for her boss, the evil government scientist man. Rob is the security guard who works in this museum. And the, like, delivery guy asks about this, like, package and what they do here, and Rob is the one to explain. And he's just this, like enthusiastic history nerd kind of security <laughs> officer like you get the sense like he 
he maybe didn't have as much money, so he couldn't actually get into archaeology school, but he took this job as a security officer, and he just, like, respects everything he's working with, and he really wants to preserve all of this stuff. Like, Rob just mm-hmm. seems like the nicest guy in the movie. And, like, he's maybe he a really little does. too enthusiastic for his position. Like, he gets a little bit too over-involved, but, like, not in a way that feels pushy, just in a way that feels nice and enthusiastic. And I just like yeah. Rob. <laughs> the delivery they, they use him as an exposition dump but like but he's the best exposition dump in the movie true the delivery guy like comes in with this package and he's like this is supposed to be for the head curator mr hornby or whatever his name is hudgens Hudgens. yeah it's hudgens supposed to be for mr hudgens it says here that he's the only one who's supposed to open it and then rob is like don't you know who this is this is the assistant curator of this museum. And he gets like really defensive on Aline's behalf. It's just like kind of adorable. He's- yeah. He goes really in depth about here's what the Akandi were, all the information we got in the opening scroll. And then makes a somehow he accidentally brings up the fact that her boyfriend has been missing for three months. And the. <laughs> She gives him a. She glares at him and stalks off. And the delivery guy is just like nice going asshole. And so the only funny moment in the movie is this: is Rob telling this guy to move it along. So he's like, "All right, come on, let's keep moving." He stands there for a few seconds. Come on, anytime. Stands there for another few seconds. Let's go. Come on. And then the guy finally leaves. And he's just like, looks so proud of himself for kicking this guy out. Rob is the only good thing about this movie. I want I want a movie that's just about a like security guarded Oh god, this is Night at the Museum. It, just watch Night at the Museum. It's it's Night I was at gonna the describe Museum Night with at the Museum. Paul Blart Mall Cop. Yeah. That's a perfectly nice combination of elements. But if Paul Blart was less of an asshole, because that character is really not likable. He's not that bad oh, in the I first I haven't actually one. seen it. <laughs> the first one is vaguely fine. Uh, it's more that the movie treats him very poorly for being overweight in the mm. first one, because movies are shit about that. Anyways, Rob is the best thing about this movie. Rob gets unceremoniously killed later after a, like... <laughs> This very horrible scene in the museum where he's, like, going around looking through the museum for, like, kind of no apparent reason because from his perspective, an electrical problem happened and he's not, like, going to the breaker to try to fix it or, like, trying to get to an office to, like, call someone about it. He's just wandering around. I mean, it's like he heard something. But like, so he's kind of looking for this shadow that keeps moving around. Anyways, not it's that not, that's a much excuse, but it's not a good version of the kind of scene it's trying to be. Yeah, and then right. he gets killed by a shadow monster. This is also it's very the se- gruesome. This is also the sequence where uh, the other, the two leads, run from the museum because they are like being chased by this shadow monster into an entire. Well, it's clearly an entirely different building that looks like a high school. Yeah. First of all, so they go out to look for Rob after he, like, doesn't come back and the lights are still flickering and they can hear noises. They go out to investigate and there is a shot 
that seems to imply that it takes them like a full on minute to walk from like the 10 feet from one side of this main hall to the other because there's a cut in between where it follows Rob doing something just before he gets killed. <laughs> but like they start walking and there's like this lengthy cutaway sequence to this other stuff happening and they cut back and they're like maybe 10 feet has like they've walked from one end of the room to the other and they're still having their conversation yeah part of the problem with this like intercutting at random is that it makes the timeline absolutely bonkers Anyway, and then after that, they're getting chased by the shadow, and they run off camera, and then there's a, like, reverse angle cut, and they are running down a hallway that is clearly in a completely different building. <sighs> like, the most clearly. Like, and there is there's very no... obviously no establishing shot of them, like, running through a door or anything. There is no way that this hallway could be connected to the museum from the direction they were coming from. Like, it just doesn't make sense architecturally. This kind of shit is all over this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, unnecessarily. They clearly had permission to use the music. They don't film them running through the same area Rob was killed in, which is a much more interesting area with, like, artifacts and shit. Yeah, they clearly had access to at least, like, three or four different areas in this building because they have, like, a couple offices that they shoot in. They have the main exhibit hall, like, the entryway hall. And then they also have, like, another exhibit room with different artifacts in it. They're all clearly different locations, or at least they have shot them so that they're not betraying that they're in the same, like, large room. And then (laughs) there's this moment where they just, like are clearly in a different build. It's like a high school. It's like a it's like a checkered tiled floor with <laughs> like cinder block hallway walls. Like it's not the same building. I also feel like we should bring up cuz I don't think anybody's mentioned it so far. The gold was valuable to ancient civilizations because it kills monsters or can capture them or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it has some repelling quality against these monsters. And there's this there's this conversation that uh Hudgens has with one of the guys that he's hired to help him like recover this this ancient sarcophagus where they are like wondering aloud why this ancient culture valued gold like gold isn't a exceedingly useful metal that is hard to find (laughs) yeah and like they even bring up the idea that like these alien or not aliens the monsters can like control electricity and gold is a conductor like there isn't like you could do some really interesting stuff here I don't even mind the mythology. It's just that they're explaining it in the dumbest fucking way possible. (laughs) Here's an idea. 713 wears armor that's gold-plated because it prevents their, like, electrical powers. That would look... Wouldn't that look neat? At least better than paintball armor. That would be pretty cool, but what they actually were talking about with the monster's electrical abilities, they don't have power over electricity. They have a disruptive field that yeah, it's, like interrupts mm-hmm. electrical 
stuff. It's still and potentially It's kind of totally separate. Yeah. It's like yeah, an electromagnetic field that they put off that disrupts electronics. Which is potentially yeah. interesting. It's the explanation for like putting out all the lights or whatever. Yeah. Which they but, don't actually put them out. They just like flicker on what is clearly some kind of like pre-programmed loop. Yeah. Because yeah. the longer the shots hold, you can tell that they're just like flickering on and off at regular intervals like there's yeah there's no randomness to it and they never actually go out entirely it's all of the fun yeah. of a ghost that makes your camera jittery in a found footage film with none of the like attention to detail of a found footage film yeah <laughs> which yeah. is just like tragic that's a tragic thing to be compared to negatively which is interesting <laughs> that you say that because like several of the movies we've talked about on this show there was an earlier version of this that was very different. So there's a little bit of foreshadowing for the fun facts section. Mm. Oofa doofa. Okay. I'm trying to think what else there is. Uh, we haven't talked about any of the mooks yet, like at all. <laughs> like there's an, there's all of these 713 characters that, all that of... are not relevant at all. <laughs> They're not relevant and they all look exceedingly 90s. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, a woman who is like manning the control center at the bureau command like headquarters who is wearing a backwards cap with like a tank top and she looks like she's she looks like she's a like pro skateboarder from the 90s <laughs> Her name is Crash, and we're clearly supposed to care about her because she keeps showing up. It keeps cutting back to her, and she's like... All she ever does is like urgently, do Intel stuff, though. She's like urgently yeah. pressing buttons on keyboards and talking over the radio and relaying information, but we don't know anything about her. She doesn't she's get not fun important. banter. Yeah. She doesn't they're, they're, get killed later. She doesn't do anything to like help them in the finale of the movie. She's just there. Yeah. And then there, similarly, there's a couple mooks who uh, we see a lot of. Like, there are two soldier people that we see all the time they're in every fight scene and we're always like supposed they're always framed as we're supposed to care about whether or not they're in danger and at the end of the movie like near the end of the movie there's this big fight scene where they're all these soldiers are just shooting at monsters coming out of the darkness i guess and all of them eventually get killed and then it's just the two of these people who i don't think we've ever heard named and or know anything about but one of them is manning a computer and he's the last person alive and so he's like looking scared and kills a monster and then he kind of wanders off to try and look for his friend who has also wandered off and then he dies in a really bloody scene where they clearly just put a red filter <laughs> like it digitally added a red splash of blood across the screen is this and the one that's that hits it. the camera? That yeah, that was onto the camera. Which is like, you can make that kind of movie, that like gritty, grindhousey, like over the top, violent action horror movie. That's almost what Resident Evil was being. But this is way too late in the movie to try and turn it into that. Yeah. Way too late in the movie. Yeah. And we don't care about him. Yeah. We never knew his name. And we never met him. It's just he's there constantly. You also see a lady's head get split in half for no apparent that reason. Was, 
Yeah, that was really good makeup, I will say. It's a perfectly nice effect. It's just like surprisingly gruesome and out of nowhere. One of the agents is trying to get out of the way of the monsters and gets his arm like completely bitten off in a really gruesome effect that is like not really congruous with any of the other deaths we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. So that's part of it. If we want to talk about 713, I think we should also bring up Burke. I want to say his name is Burke. I think so. Oh, that guy. The, the other male, the guy who works at 713 currently and has some kind of a beef with the protagonist that we don't go into any real detail on yeah. and is then resolved when the main guy saves his life once. And in a movie that was had characters at all, there would be fantastic homoerotic tension between these two. Mm. But I can't be bothered to even try to make this gay. <laughs> so it's just very alpha broy going at each other, and then one realizes, oh, the other one's bigger alpha than me. This yeah. is fine. It took me reading the Wikipedia summary to actually figure out what their whole relationship was. According to Wikipedia, and I may have missed something in this movie. Uh, Burke was Carnby's protege when he was a like high-ranking member of 713. And then when he retired, Burke took over his job. I got the sense that Burke had what was his job. I didn't know that that was the relationship they were supposed to have. There's no explanation as to why he seems to hate Carnby so much. Because he's a real dick to him at the start. Yeah. (sighs) You get the sense that Carnby, like, burned all his bridges in 713. But, like, it seems like he just kind of quit. And that he was just kind of allowed to quit. There's also, like... It's deeply unclear how secret this organization is and who knows what at any given time because, like, yeah, the girlfriend character clearly knows what's going on. And I think Rob kind of does, too. Like, it doesn't seem that secret, but also it kind of is. Because Hudgens is still a, like, civilian advisor to 713 even after his whole experimental wing got shut down uh and everybody seems to know that it doesn't seem to be a real secret at all all the other characters seem to be aware that he is like working with 713 and nobody seems confused or surprised by it there's also fish which is a crazy ass character name the like doctor dude who, oh, that was his name. Oh, yeah, the old doctor. Who autopsies a corpse for Edward and shows him that he's got, like, a, a skeleton snake, a spine snake. <laughs> a, yeah. Um, that was apparently, like, electrocuted when he was in the orphanage power box. Yeah. Yeah, so he it didn't fully bind to him, so he sort of has slightly heightened reflexes due to it, but it's dead, I guess. The way this is, I guess, intended to be communicated to the audience is that in the flashback that happens before we have established any timeline, when he has run away from the orphanage, he like hides in a power junction, an underground power box room outside of the orphanage. And I guess we're supposed to assume that he like got electrocuted and it killed the thing before it bonded to his spine. But that like we don't 
actually see any of that happening. It's just like quick flashes of him hiding in this junction room. And then we cut back to him like in the present day on the airplane. <laughs> There's so little information imparted in a lot of these shots that they could be removed entirely and the movie would probably be slightly more interesting for not having any information at all. <laughs> this movie... Part of what makes this movie so terrible, I think, is that there are so many better movies that do things from it, like Men in Black or Hellboy or like fucking any movie where people act. It's just <laughs> there is a sequence. Unbearable. There is a sequence in Blade where he fights vampires in a nightclub, and it's set to a strobe light, and it looks fucking cool. Fuckers always be. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that. (laughs) Yeah, you could make a cool movie with this fucking concept. If somebody competent got a hold of this script, they might even be able to make something interesting. But nobody was competent. I refuse to believe anybody competent was even invited to the set. Yeah. Oh man, I couldn't find a lot of like stories about what happened on set with this movie. I. I did find an on-set interview with Uwe Boll that was recorded at the time the movie was filming, but it was for Germany Today, and it was all in German, and I was really disappointed because I wanted to, I wanted to hear this interview, but there was that, there was no captions for it. Uwe is German, and Nathan is not German enough to have learned German. Your I know. Grandfather really <laughs> let you down on this one. I know a handful of words, but not enough to listen to an entire interview. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh. I I will say that even though this movie is just a handful of bad action sequences and really bad exposition dumps, it is not quite as exposition dumpy as another movie that I have seen, which is also terrible, which was Men Who Stare at Goats. I did not see that. It has Brad Pitt in it. Have you even heard of it? Oh yeah, I know. I know of it. It was really like it was okay. a star-studded movie. It was right? talked about pretty heavily ahead yeah. of watch, at the very least. Yeah, I, I, I think it was one it of those a long like, time ago, and it was just exposition the entire movie, and that's it. <laughs> so you have seen I, one movie I that fails worse in one aspect, at the very least. Yes. I mean, if I combine all of the bad movies I've ever seen, I could probably produce something worse than this on every individual aspect, but I don't know if I've seen something that fails at every single thing except for, like, sheer legibility to the extent that this movie does and has nothing redeeming in itself. Like, there is nothing about it that I would ever recommend you watch it. Like, don't. Don't watch this movie. Like... I like there, watching corny movies. There is no amount of alcohol I could consume that would make this movie entertaining. No. There's a there's a spot back uh back when the movie when at the end of the movie when everything is empty, there are objects just kind of spaced evenly around the scene that around this empty neighborhood. And one that I noticed, uh, there's a bunch of background things that I noticed, but uh, this was one. There is a lawnmower, an abandoned lawnmower, sitting on top of a bunch of dead grass. It is just totally brown grass (laughs) sitting there. It's like, why would you be mowing? Uh, Are you trying to imply it's been a long time? 
No, I, I don't think so. I think they just found an object and were like, put it here. We're going to have a car over here. We're going to have a bike sitting here. Put another car over here. Just kind of space them evenly out so we can see them all. And that's it. Uh, uh, there's another this... background thing that I think was supposed to be... Uh, impl- uh, Carnby and Fish meet outside of 713 at some point because Fish has decided to give him some information. And I think it's supposed to imply that Fish is being watched by either Dr. Hudgens or 713. Somehow someone knows about his going rogue or whatever. There is a taxi cab with a person holding a camera aimed directly at them in the background. And then it's then it moves on. And that's that's it. See, I hope that's actually just one of the camera people and the movie cared so little about its shooting that they just didn't hide him. (gasps) No, no, no. It's like a cannon. It's like a handheld regular photo Uh, camera. God damn it. I mean, (laughs) this movie is bad, I think, is the thing we're coming down on. We could talk endlessly about its individual elements of badness, probably. Like, I... I don't see a feasible end to this project because the more I think about the movie, the more I have to say that is just like bonkers about it. Uh, uh, All right. Did, oh, did we, oh no, the sex scene. One thing. We should talk about the incredibly gratuitous sex scene. We didn't talk about the sex scene. There was a sex scene? <laughs> oh, okay. This is this is something I learned in reading about it. There were versions of this movie. Okay. Um Okay, this the, is fun. We got two different versions of the movie, and we both hated it anyways. Great. There are, I guess, <laughs> three versions of this movie. There is an there is the theatrical re- version, theatrical release, which I think is the version that we saw on Prime. There is a DVD release from a little bit later that removed this sex scene for specific regions. And then later after that, Uwe Boll released a dir- like un- unrated director's cut version, which I don't know what was added to that or how different it is, but it's probably just gorier, <laughs> if I had to guess, um, mm. based on what I read. But yeah, so in the version that we watched... Um, when the lady <laughs> goes to visit him in the warehouse, yes. for no apparent reason, we must say, she mm. just shows up with the artifact to like... This is. Oh, you, yeah, you I mentioned that. the scene where he strips his shirt off and like falls on his bed and goes to sleep. It's right after that, and I want to point out that he takes off his shirt, removes his holster belt with his pistol on it, and then just like throws his gun on the bed and then like flops on top of it and falls asleep. In which his is, jeans. Like, in his jeans, yeah. which is just like. Put your fucking gun in a lockbox, dude. That's so dangerous. <laughs> At least put it on your fucking bedside table. Like, don't sleep yeah. on your gun. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so in your version, does it like cut straight to her like coming there with the box, and then? Uh, I think it cuts away to some like okay. random nonsense, and then it cuts to her bringing the box. She sits down at the table, looks at him, and then it cuts to something else unrelated. Okay, and then okay. we get probably a fight scene. In the theatrical version, she comes to the place, she sits down and stares at him for a while. He's asleep for a bit. 
And then she walks over and starts taking her clothes off and then just like leans down and starts making out with him. Excuse me. And then they have sex. And then the rest of the movie happens and it's never really, it doesn't really come up again and they don't really have a conversation about anything. When it cuts back to them, she's sitting at the computer and he walks over and they start talking about what they're doing next. Yeah. It's so gratuitous. It's a completely unmotivated sex scene. There's like a terrible song behind it. Oh, God. This movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This movie is real bad. Aside from its, you know, soundtrack, which is just a bunch of like exoticizing flutes and cliche (laughs) epic orchestra, uh, they occasionally have metal music. And uh, at the end of the movie, when they cut away from just cut into the credits, we immediately get I Wish I Had an Angel by Nightwish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's like trying to play itself uh, in a very different way than I would expect it to. This, I, I think we should also mention that in the gun flash scene, they are playing like a heavy metal song and it just, yeah. it makes it thoroughly more lame. <laughs> Like, it's pretty hard to make a metal sequence in a movie actually cool. There was, like, a short period of time where that wasn't the most dated thing ever. This movie does not pull it off in the slightest. It does not even appear to be trying to do anything clever. Yep. This movie's bad. It's real fucking bad. (laughs) All right, Nathan. The movie wasn't fun, but do you have any fun facts? (laughs) I do have a few. So... I do want to briefly bring up the cast of this movie because we haven't talked about them at all, but Edward Carnby is played by Christian Slater, who is a pretty good actor. Usually. He just kind of (laughs) takes any job that he's offered. I know, I, I worked with people in Saskatchewan, Canada, who shot like B sci fi movies with Christian Slater starring in them because he just likes to act. If you know someone who knows Christian Slater, it seems like he's pretty willing to be in basically anything. And he's a pretty nice guy. So that's cool. He's not very good in this movie, but I don't think that's on him. (laughs) I'm not really... I don't feel like ragging on any of the actors. The actors are all giving the best performance I think they can, given the situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Aline is played by Tara Reid, who connoisseurs of bad movies will know as the kind of... uh, heir apparent to trash movies who stars in the Sharknado franchise. Oh, God. Um, She was also famously played Bunny Lebowski in The Big Lebowski, which was probably her best role, in which she just plays the, like, gold-digging young uh, wife to this old um, paraplegic rich man. (laughs) Which is a good role for her, and she pulls it off really well. Uh, But yeah, she's not a dramatic actor. (laughs) No, she is not. Yeah, she doesn't have a lot of um, anything, really. (laughs) It's like she's reading her lines. Yeah. It's not... Again, I don't want to shit on the actors too hard, because it's not like they would have done well no matter how talented they were. The script wasn't there, but like... Yeah. Yeah. There is a pretty noticeable difference between her and the rest of the cast. Everybody else is at least kind of, like, character actor level of, like, competency. Yeah, the only other, like, notable name in the movie is Stephen Dorff, who plays Burke. Um, He's 
around in a lot of other stuff, um, but he hasn't done anything that I think is overly recognizable as like a star. He's just kind of a character actor. He is a very generic looking man. <laughs> yeah. There are lots of scenes in this movie of two nearly identical white men yelling at each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. So yeah, uh, the other interesting things, um, this movie was supposed to be a like tie-in marketing stunt for the next Alone in the Dark game, uh, which was going to come out around the same time in 2005, but got delayed so much that it didn't come out until 2008. Oh, no. Oh, jeez. So this movie was supposed to be kind of riding on the hype of another game coming out and didn't really have that <laughs> when it finally was released. Um, Honestly, it's probably good for the game. <laughs> that there was some distance be. on this, yeah. yeah. Um, this movie only had a $20 million budget. Uh, of which, after it its shows. entire global theatrical run, it only made 12. Oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, that's not... For those of you who are wondering, that's bad. Yeah, they made way less than their money back on this movie. But they did eventually turn a profit on the DVD market because oh, this movie became kind of a cult classic in Germany. Because Germans... <laughs> Why? There was like a week or so there where it was like number one on the German DVD sale charts. Hey, Germany. Did they bundle it with something? I, I don't know. It's like Duck Hunt. It's only actually that popular <laughs> because it came with your DVD system in Germany. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, the other fun fact I have uh, is actually a quote, because I mentioned earlier that this movie was originally written by someone different that had a completely different kind of idea in mind for how to present the story. So Blair Erickson wrote a first draft script for Alone in the Dark, and I'm going to read a quote that he said in response to seeing what Uwe Boll did with his original script. <laughs> this was uh, with an, uh, from an interview on the publication Something Awful. The original script took the Alone in the Dark premise and depicted it as if it were actually based on a true story of a private investigator in the northeastern U.S. whose missing persons cases began to uncover a disturbing paranormal secret. It was told through the eyes of a writer following Edward Carnby and his co-worker for a novel, and depicted them as real-life blue-collar folks who never expected to find hideous beings waiting for them in the dark. We tried to stick close to the H.P. Lovecraft style and the low-tech nature of the original game, always keeping the horror in the shadows so you never saw what was coming for them. Here's where it gets really good. Thankfully, Dr. Bull was able to hire his loyal team of hacks to crank out something much better than our crappy story and add in all sorts of terrifying horror movie essentials, like opening gateways to alternate dimensions, bimbo blonde archaeologists, sex scenes, mad scientists, slimy dog monsters, special army forces designed to battle slimy CGI dog monsters, Tara Reid, Matrix slow-motion gun battles, and car chases. Oh yeah, and a 10-minute opening backstory scroll re read aloud to the illiterate audience, the only people able to successfully miss all the negative reviews. I mean, hell, <laughs> Bull knows that's where the real scares lie. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, uh, that that's a, that's all said by the writer, the writer of the writer. original script, which the original, this is yeah. no way representative oh, of. God. So, I can't imagine 
having your name in any way related to this movie and knowing that you did not actually have anything to do with the mess that it is. And if they'd just <laughs> fucking paid attention to you, it might be vaguely watchable. So yeah, this was <laughs> going to be, in its original script format, was going to be a found footage style kind of documentary movie where this writer is like documenting his experiences with a paranormal investigation crew while he's researching a novel also known as a vaguely fucking interesting that. premise yeah right that sounds yeah and cool. a little bit ahead of its time because the found footage genre yeah. was not really it's at its peak yet so like he would have like done something creative I can't imagine how much it must hurt as a writer to be told Uwe Boll is directing the movie you wrote. It must just be like <laughs> your baby got kidnapped by an evil German monster. <laughs> right in that good, like that sweet spot for making like low budget uh, found footage been, style horror. Could have been a deeply influential and interesting movie. Or like been so bad in being a, a found footage movie it ended the trend early, which would have been good in its own right. <laughs> But instead of either of those, it just sucks. <laughs> Nevertheless, they made a direct-to-video sequel. No. What? You will literally have to pay us to watch that. I'm Do sorry. We no, no. It, it was ready. <laughs> I don't think it was theatrically released. It and was therefore like, we are safe. It was a direct-to-video sequel that came out several years later. I don't know uh, why. How did they... Why did I they... guess because... Uwe Boll finances his own movies and wanted to make another one. If you all... I don't actually know if he directed the second one. I can only assume so, because nobody in their right mind would have been willing to make another one after that fucking shit show of a movie. <laughs> if you PayPal us each $1,000... <laughs> Literally, though, if you paid us $1,000... Each, I would watch the second one and talk about it. <laughs> you can maybe negotiate me down with that, but you gotta be willing to actually pay me real Canadian currency. Yeah. No fucking Bitcoin, I'm talking cash. Here's the thing, <laughs> audience. If you want us to watch excruciatingly bad movies that would not necessarily be on our list, you can pay us. We don't have dignity. This is capitalism. I'm, I'm willing. Uh, but if you don't, we're not going to talk about them. <laughs> we do have dignity, but it is easily paid off. Uh, I will also mention that this is like another, another movie where there are like ancient artifacts spread across the world that connect to do a thing that the ancient culture never wanted it to do. And nobody at any point, either in the past when these artifacts are created or in the present when they're trying to prevent the bad thing from happening... Just melt any of the fucking artifacts. You don't have to make a key to the underworld. You can melt it. You don't have to put it in the door. Like, I get that they don't know to in Carnby's, this movie. To but Carnby's like, credit, he does that one when he's about to put the thing in the door. He does say, you know, trust the economy. Let's not open the door. And then they get held at gunpoint to do so by Dr. Hudgens. Sure. Why did the Akani make a fucking key? That's they hid yeah, all the know. parts in the most remote places in the world. And like at one point, the archaeologist is like, why would they make a puzzle and then put all of the pieces across the world if you wanted people to solve it? Like, they don't fucking want you to solve it, bitch. <laughs> oh, before we go... 
I want to talk about the ending because the climactic scene is them. They get held at gunpoint and forced to open the door. Uh, or at least to give the dude the key so he can open the door. And then the yeah. door is open and they have to close it so that the shadow monsters don't get out. And <laughs> there's this like back and forth where uh, Burke has put a bag of explosives next to the door so that they can cause a cave in to seal it for good but then they're running away and he tries to set it off but they're too far from the explosives the de the remote detonator won't work so he sacrifices himself to go back and set off the explosives manually but when he gets back to the door the electric metal door that covers the ancient stone door is still closed yeah the, none nothing of has gotten, gotten out <laughs> But they have been acting up to this point like they've been chased. Like they're hot on their heels. Carnby actively says, I can hear them coming. We have to get out. And by the time they get to the surface, everybody is gone. Everyone in the city's gone. And in voiceover, we hear him talking about how the door was only opened for a little bit, but still something got out. <laughs> And also like how yeah. they disappeared like the Akandi oh disappeared thousands of years ago. And it's just like, well, which is it again? Did they evacuate or were they disappeared? It's, what it's, the yeah. hell? It's so fucking stupid. It's so stupid. It's so bad. And, and again, not, uh, like, they, they, they kill Dr. Hudgens with a knife throw after he opens the door. Like they throw a knife at him and that's it. He's done. And then when Burke sacrifices himself he grabs the bag brings it back into the lab and then like shoots a gun a bunch and then he blows it up uh and the explosion travels all through the mine shaft but later we see burke coughing in a dusty room that has not collapsed getting up and that's the last we see of him <sighs> also the only dead body we've seen in this final empty city is a nun who committed suicide, which doesn't make any sense because now instead of, you know, getting killed by a horrifying monster, shadow monster, and like in her faith going to eternal bliss or whatever, she has avoided being killed by a shadow monster that she doesn't know about to be damned to well, hell forever, according to her faith. I think that is I think the idea pretty sure is how that's that works. She is, she is so she is unable to cope with having been involved in the suffering of these children that she was supposed to be caring for twenty years ago or whatever. So she has like committed suicide as a form of penance, is I think how it's supposed to be read, but it's not very clear. It doesn't work. It doesn't. You're right. Nothing in the movie works, though. This isn't any no. more not working than the rest of it. Alone in the Dark, a movie that doesn't work. <laughs> I think that's all I want to uh, say about this. Do you guys have anything more you need to say about this movie? Uh, I think I have no, aired all of we got my a surprise. Yeah, we got a surprisingly long episode out of this garbage movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you want your ratings? Don't watch this. Don't, don't watch, watch this. this. Don't watch this, guys. Don't. Don't watch this. I'm not this. joking. Like, it's not fun, bad. 
It's just, it's so hard to even pay attention to it. Like, every five yeah. minutes or so, we'd pause it because something stupid happened and we'd be shocked it was still only five minutes into the more into the movie. It's just unbearable. <laughs> it looks like a low-budget 90s TV show. It's just, it's just a slog. Oh, I do have one more grievance. At the beginning of the movie, when Dr. Hudgens is talking to the nun, they frame it like a soap opera. Oh, yeah. She's yeah, standing totally with her back do. to him towards the camera. Uh, the movie's bad. Yeah, movie it's bad? really bad. Uh, That's my rating. Do you movie have a bad. rating? Okay. <laughs> That's uh, it? That's your whole rating? For me, honestly... You guys go. I'll come I, up with I something have, on my, at the end. I, I have a scale on a scale of a thousand muzzle flashes being the worst to rob the security guard. I give this movie seven exposition dumps. <laughs> mm. It's a bold rating, but I like it. All right. If out of Tommy Wiseau, I give this movie a discount Paul W.S. Anderson. <laughs> and out of the movies we've watched i put this one at the bottom <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> this is worse than mortal kombat annihilation because at least oh. that movie had a couple fun characters and a big pinball system and this a lady movie. who turned into a fuck wolf that one's <laughs> got some stuff this movie has nothing <laughs> just nothing uh, this movie has rob will yeah, always this movie have has rob, rob. In honor of Rob, the only good thing in this movie. <laughs> Rest in peace, Rob. Yeah. This episode is dedicated to Rob. <sighs> All right. Uh, our next episode is going to be on House of the Dead. This was apparently the peak zombie game movie period. Oh, yeah. The, the like, the people, the orphans with the, like, cent spine centipedes or whatever... Just they're just fucking fast zombies. They're yeah. just fast zombies when they actually show up. It's totally unimportant. But I thought it should reference that like this movie's derivative in every possible fashion. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh yeah, so our next movie is gonna be The House of the Dead. Uh you can find me on Twitter at Bert Nerdtram. You can find me on Twitter at Kenzie Phoenix. You can find me on Twitter at Conwell underscore Alex. You can find all of us on the podcast Dice Weave, where we play a Genesis tabletop RPG mod in the Mass Effect universe. It's a lot of fun. I'm usually less sad. <laughs> so much less sad. Uh, and you can find this show on Twitter at VGTM Podcast. Thank you all for listening. Don't forget to save. Game over, y'all. This movie was awful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Roxy. I am. <laughs> I've never felt the need to genuinely apologize before, but this like, is oof. this is the first movie we've watched where I have unequivocally agreed with the Rotten Tomatoes score of two <laughs> percent. I had hope. It was foolish. Like. 98% oh of critics agree this movie is bad. Yeah, I believe you. <laughs> I'm in that 98%. <laughs> I want to know who the 2% are. I don't know. Uve <sighs> Boll's like 
cousin and best friend. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he made a sock puppet account on Rotten Tomatoes and rated his own movie. Some German child who was only given one DVD who's never seen another movie in their entire life. <laughs> Uh, yeah. This is the fucking shadow cave. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think even the people in the shadow cave would agree that this movie is bad. <laughs> Look, you can really speed up Plato's allegory of the cave if you show them this movie. They just fucking run out. They rip their own arms off. They get out of there. <laughs> <laughs>